All right, we're going to open our Bibles to uh, the Song of Solomon. So in the middle of your Bible, you have the book of Psalms, and then you have three books that are credited to Solomon as the author. They're all considered in the genre of wisdom literature. They're the book of Proverbs, which he probably wrote in his middle life, the book of Ecclesiastes, which he wrote when he was older, and the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, which he wrote when he was young. In fact, this comes on the day of his wedding. Let me just say from the outset, this is mature content. Uh, scholars have said that this is probably the most erotic chapter in the Song of Solomon. And yet, as I say that, I'll tell you that it's pretty much filled with metaphor and stuff like that. So it's very delicate and it's not uh, anything that, you know, would be uh, beyond, I would say, PG-13. I know the high school students are here because Pastor Matthew is sick. I'm not gonna say that the Lord caused Pastor Matthew <laughs> to be sick, but, but I think it's good that our high school students are here because you guys need to hear what the Bible says about this area. One thing that you need to know is that God is the one who designed marriage, designed your body, designed sexuality and all that goes with it. He designed the parts. He designed the pleasure that goes with being one with a person. And he designed it for marriage. And he didn't just design it to have children, although that can be a byproduct. But the main reason for sexual intimacy in the bounds of marriage is for oneness. If you're taking notes, write that down. Sexual intimacy is to know a person like you could know no other person this side of heaven. And that's what the Song of Solomon is all about. It is recorded in seven idols, I-D-Y-L-S. These are short songs or poems. The best way that we would modernize the idea is it's set in the idea of musical theater. Each of the idols is a song or a poem set in a pastoral agricultural setting with a romantic light upon it. And that's what's happening in the Song of Solomon. Now, it is about a couple, namely Solomon and a Shulamite bride, but it does have some higher uh, spiritual truth. That is, it does relate in some of the verses to the gospel of Jesus and to the fact that Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. We're going to end today with a time of communion. It might seem a little bit awkward with the content we're going to deal with, but actually, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're anticipating the day of consummation when the church goes to be with the Lord. And that, so I think it's a very natural setting for the time of the Lord's Supper. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for all the precious people that have gathered in your name on this Lord's Day I pray that you've been glorified by what's taken place so far and what will be ahead of us in the teaching of your word. I pray that our ears would be open, our hearts attentive, and that you be glorified in the teaching and the hearing and responding to your word as well. This is a delicate subject, Lord, and it needs careful attention. It needs um, all the grace that we can sprinkle upon it. We all come from a certain amount of brokenness. Uh, maybe we did things completely the wrong way. There are young people listening who are maybe uh, anticipating the day of their wedding, and they need help in navigating these 
ideas as well. What to expect? What does God say about sex? What does he say about marriage? What does he say about the timing of these things and the enjoyment of them? We ought not to be ashamed of what the Bible teaches. Every part of your word is inspired by God and is profitable. And so our prayer is that it would profit us in applying what you have to say, Lord. That we can see that this is an area of life that you have designed. It's for your purposes. And when it's right, it is beautiful and blessed. And I pray that you would bless the time. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, a ancient Jewish wedding looked like this. When the groom was preparing to uh, pick up his bride, he would, there would be a day set typically, but he would come at an unknown hour. And so the, the bridesmaids would be prepared at the bride's-to-be house, and the bridegroom would come and pick her up. And he would arrive with an entourage of groomsmen, a whole group of people, and he would come to sweep her up, take her into his limo, if you will. And then they would go to the groom's house, the house that he had prepared for the two of them, and the ceremony would take place. At the house of the groom or the future house of the groom and bride, they would celebrate. Sometimes the celebration would last as much as a week, but on the first day of the wedding, there would be vows exchanged. It would be very public. And then the marriage would be consummated on day one of the ceremony, on the evening of that wedding day. And then the ceremony or the celebration could go on for many more days. They say as much as a week they would actually celebrate. Now, I've done more weddings than I can count, but I will tell you this, that a wedding has two kind of uh, complementary elements to it. It is festive and joyous, and that's right, and it should be. And it's also deeply spiritual. So when a couple walks to the altar, I'm often up there, and I get the privilege of watching the groom as the bride comes and all of that, and the exchanging of vows. And it's a deeply profound spiritual thing that's presided over by the Lord, witnessed by friends and family. But yet it's also a very festive thing very joyful. It's a celebratory thing, and there's nothing wrong with the celebration aspect as well. The two come together, and the two come together in this wonderful picture of a wedding day. This is chapter 3, verse 6 of the Song of Solomon opening with what, New King James NIV, who is this coming up from the wilderness? Like, that's a simile. It's captured in a picture here. Like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all scented powders of the merchant. Now the question is asked, who is this that is coming up from the wilderness? It looks like there's clouds of smoke or columns of smoke in the distance, yet it's mixed with this fragrant, uh, these fragrant scents. What's going on? Well, what's going on is that this is the day when the bridegroom has come to sweep the bride-to-be into his chariot, if you will. It's the day of the wedding. And in the distance, those who have been anticipating this moment can see him coming. And as he's coming, there's the kicking up of smoke in the desert. In the Bible, the wilderness often represents a place of testing or the place of the world and sin and difficulty. But here he comes from the wilderness, if you will, to conquer all of those things and to come and take his bride. 
And so there has been a patient waiting for this moment. Intimacy in marriage is a great celebration, but it is reserved for the wedding night and beyond. And it should be a healthy, regular area for a married couple. But you are not to start that intimacy until you are married. That's what the Bible says. It is reserved for the marriage bed to be undefiled, Hebrews 13, verse 4. So God blesses marriage and he blesses the sexual union in the context of marriage. And she's been waiting. Everybody's been anticipating this day and here he comes. Who is this new living sweeping in from the wilderness, a picture of our fallen world, like a cloud of smoke? Who is it? Fragrant with myrrh and frankincense and every kind of spice. And so here comes the bridegroom and his coming is Obviously comparable, if you've been seeing it, to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus told the parable of the ten virgins. This, these words recorded in Matthew 25, verse 6. At midnight, there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Come out to meet him. And there's going to be a day when our great bridegroom comes for his bride. In a, what I believe is a single second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in a darkened sky, and he's going to illuminate the sky and come with all of his angels, and some believe with the church as well. And he's going to come to rescue his bride and to take her to a place that he's prepared. Behold, I prepare a place for you. This is the wedding imagery in much of what Jesus said. Isaiah 63, 1 has to do with the second coming. And it says, who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra, the one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I who speak in righteousness, says the Lord, mighty to save. Isaiah 63, verse 1. And so when Jesus came at his first coming, the people were asking during his triumphal entry, who is this? Who's coming? And they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And King Solomon cast a shadow to the ultimate son of David, that is the Messiah. And Solomon, you know, the promise of one who would rule on the throne of David is ultimately fulfilled not in Solomon, but in the greater son of David, that is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Who is this who's coming? Well, Jesus Christ is going to arrive. The king's arrival will occur. And you can see that it's accompanied with fragrances of myrrh and frankincense. And he's going to have a crown of gold on his head. And his chariot is inlaid with gold. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh are the three gifts that the wise men bring to the child Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. Gifts of a king, also to talk about his high priestly ministry and his death for his people. Behold, verse 7, it is the traveling couch or the love seat of Solomon. Not joking when I say you could render this the love seat of Solomon. And here's what's happening Solomon, as you've probably seen in some movies, is being carried on poles by some of the mighty men of Israel, and he's traveling in an ancient way in an elevated carriage that they carry on poles. It'd be kind of like an ancient limousine. And this is how he'll come to pick up his bride. 
And this is a very beautiful uh, piece of furniture. It's called Solomon's Carriage in the NIV. And with them are 60 mighty men around it. You could say the mighty men of David. They're the mighty men of Israel, and all of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. So as the smoke rises in the distance, the perfumes, all of a sudden, what comes into view is the traveling love seat or Solomon's carriage being carried, carried by 60 mighty men. These are somewhat of the groomsmen or the best men of Israel. Now, I've never seen a wedding that had 60 groomsmen, although the wedding of Shane and Natalie Lance did come close. I think, in fact, they had about 59 groomsmen. No, it wasn't that many. But they had a whole, I think they went off the stage. There were so many in that wedding party. And this is kind of what's going on here. The mighty men, the strongest and the best uh, of Israel are carrying and surrounding the carriage. They say in the ancient world, when you had a wedding day, because there was gifts and money associated with it, that robbers would try to rob the coming carriage. And so there was a need of protection, and these men were practically there to provide that. Now, a couple things I just want to mention by way of application is when you get married, you want the best people around you to witness that marriage and to hold you accountable. Don't just pick people for your wedding party that you know in passing that may or may not know the Lord. I'm not saying go over the top here, but I'm saying you should have core people in your wedding party bearing witness to the covenant. Try to pick the best, the people that know you the best and love you the best. I think that's an important aspect. Something else, you can see that Solomon has provided a really cool limousine to pick her up. When you get married, don't pull up in your beater car that's smoking. <laughs> Mom and dad of the bride are not going to be impressed. Now, let me just say that we all start somewhere, right? You're probably not going to pull up in a Porsche. If you did, you probably came from money, right? We all start somewhere, but we need to provide for our bride. In fact, the New Testament says that those who don't provide for their own, listen, have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. Now, when we all get married, for those of you, some of you have the gift of singleness, some of you may be widowed or widow, widowers, and I would encourage you to find refuge in the spiritual application here, or maybe even there may be a future spouse for you. But, when we get married, we, we all start at ground zero, right? And we, we do the best that we can do to build a life. I had a, a wise man once tell me, Michael, you're going to make more money as you get older, and you'll be, you'll be more stable. And that's been true. And I will just say this. The enemy of this kind of life is laziness. So don't be lazy. If you're a man listening to my voice, your job is to provide for your family. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to provide everything. Sometimes it's a dual income household and all of that. But I'm just saying that this is a call to provide. And obviously, Solomon's got a lot to give, right? I mean, he's a wealthy man. He's a well-to-do man. 
And he also is giving her protection. I've been told by many, many women over the years that safety and security are a huge part of a woman's uh, feeling at peace with a man. So we do our best to supply protection, an environment where a woman feels safe. And it's more than just that you have a weapon. You can see that these guys are all carrying swords. At Shane's wedding, they all had guns. So that's one option. No, I'm just kidding. They didn't know. But at least I didn't know if they did. But, uh, but here's the thing. I think the, the principle is to provide a place of safety. And I mean safety also from you. Don't be a jerk to your spouse. Don't make them feel like they're walking on eggshells and they never know where they stand with you from moment to moment, day to day. That's unfair and that's not what you committed to. So you do your best to come into the, the relationship and into that love with all the fruits of the Spirit. So King Solomon has come and it's impressive. King Solomon is identified in verse nine. He has made for himself a sedan chair. Some believe that this could be translated a mercy seat, which is quite interesting. Out of the finest wood, that's the timber of Lebanon. There's no better than the timbers of Lebanon. And some believe that you can see a picture of the cross here. Uh, in verse 10, it says, He made its post of silver, still dealing with the carriage, its back of gold, you can see gold is included, and its seat of purple. Purple is a garment of royalty, but it also speaks of the blood of Christ and the gospel. It's purple fabric with its interior and it's lovingly fitted out or inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Now the daughters of Jerusalem are another voice in the Song of Songs and they're kind of like the bridesmaids. And they've contributed to the vehicle uh, where he will pick her up and they will enjoy the ride to the wedding and, and all of that. And it's been inlaid with love. Love is what holds everything together. The limo can be nice, but if it's void of love, it means nothing. Love holds everything together. You could have very little, but if you have love, you have everything. You could have the nicest things that life have to offer, but if it's void of love, you are nothing, 1 Corinthians 13. And it means nothing. But with love, it means everything. Love is what holds it all together. And so the principle here is the bridegroom is providing, protecting, building security, etc. There was a, at the turn of the century, I think it was around the year 2000, the best-selling book in Amazon.com's marriage category was How to Write Your Own Premarital Agreement. It's a, it's a book on prenuptial contracts. A publicist at Source Books, where they hang congratulatory plaques, said, kind of funny, isn't it? We put out all these books on love and marriage, and the bestseller is How to Write a Prenup Agreement. And so the bride speaks and she says, go forth, O daughters of Zion. I think this is another way to say the daughters of Jerusalem, the bridesmaids, if you will. Zion is a name, another name for Jerusalem. And she says, gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him. That may be Bathsheba. On the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. 
Now she tells the bridesmaids, look at him. (laughs) He's all mine and I am his, but I want you to gaze on him. She's proud of him. She's proud of who he is. Mom's been involved, and you all know how moms get involved on the wedding day. Uh, Yeah, we won't even go there. But anyway, she's been involved uh, with the making of the crown. And that means she's endorsing this union. She believes that it is right and good and true. And they are looking at Solomon, gazing at him. According to rabbinic tradition, crowns were worn by the bridegroom and the bride up until the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. They would be seen as the king and queen of the day. And when Adam and Eve were first made, they were supposed to be king and queen of the earth, to rule over it, have authority over all the species. And so you can see second coming imagery in all of this. When Jesus comes for his bride, He's coming with all the angels in rapid fire. Matthew 24, 30 and 31. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels, his groomsmen, if you will, with a great trumpet. They will gather together his elect, his bride, from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. In Matthew 26, 64, Jesus said to him, you said it for yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then this is Matthew 25, 31 through 34, the words of Jesus. He's done a wedding parable, and then he says these words. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Second Thessalonians 1.10 puts it this way. When Jesus comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at or to be admired among all who have believed, 2 Thessalonians 1.10. When the Lord comes, he's going to come as the king in wedding imagery, and we are going to gaze upon him, much like Solomon is being gazed upon by the wedding party here. And we are going to, probably, it's going to be hard to turn our eyes away Because the king's coming in glory and he paid our ransom price. He paid the dowry for us. Isaiah 62.5 rounds it out. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Isaiah 62.5. Now that is the beautiful wedding, second coming imagery leading up to the moment when he arrives and meets her face to face or eye to eye. Now, we're going to get into a uh, relational uh, moment here where it does get very intimate. And notice what he says. He says, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. He starts with her eyes. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Now, we have uh, special greeting cards we've made today for you. For three easy payments of $19.99, it will say, your hair, honey, is like a flock of goats. 
coming down the mountain. It's going to earn you huge brownie points, right? Now, you're saying, well, what, what does this mean? Well, eyes like doves, uh, the dove was seen as pure and innocent and gentle and beautiful. And so he's saying, honey, your eyes are beautiful. When, when it says her hair is like a flock of goats descending from the mountains, it means that she has let her hair down. This is leading into the wedding night now, the moment of consummation. And it's a provocative statement in, the, in this time to let one's hair down. She would have a veil on. She would be, be prepared for the, the wedding. But when she let her hair down, it was a sign that they were going to be close and intimate. He says, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes, which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost her young. She has all her teeth, <laughs> and they are white, and she brushed her teeth before the wedding. And all God's people said, yes, <laughs> amen, right? Not one of them is missing means that she doesn't look like a hockey player. Right now, in the ancient world, we have to understand that they didn't have cosmetic dentistry. They didn't have, you know, the knowledge about fluoride and all of that. You know, if we get a tooth knocked out, we can go and get it fixed and it, it looks relatively good. In the ancient world, if you lost a tooth, it was gone. So he's celebrating that when she smiled, they were all there <laughs> and they were pearly white. And all God's people said, yeah, Amen. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. It means her, the form of her lips are beautiful and red. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples, it could be her cheeks here, are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. She's got the veil on, but he can see her eyes and her rosy cheeks. She's prepared herself for that day. And then he says, your neck is like the Tower of David, built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the mighty men. Now, I'm not sure that you husbands should go home and call your wife's neck the Tower of David or compare her to a newly shorn sheep or anything like that. These are ancient metaphors, but what he's saying is that her neck that has necklaces on it and beads and columns, a dress for the wedding day is beautiful, but she's a dignified woman. When she walks, she walks with an erectness of dignity. There's a, there's a moral beauty about her. She has saved herself for the day of the wedding, and she's morally beautiful. And you know what? The only description that we have of this woman is that she has dark skin because of the sun. There's no other physical description, but we know that she's beautiful through his eyes. And gentlemen, I will just say this to you, that we need to tell our brides they're beautiful. And we're going to see that. We see that in verse 1. We'll see that in verse 7. He says, you are altogether beautiful. See, our, our wives need constant reinforcement in our world of their beauty. Because there's a lot of pressure, right? The magazines, the, the television shows, etc. It's, it's a phony world out there, but it does put undue pressure on people. See, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So you can see that the, the section, he's celebrating her beauty. Behold how beautiful you are. Solomon began with the most important sex organ we have, the mind. This writer says, women are verbal creatures. 
Many have issues, many men have issues in this area of being verbal. They are moved by what they hear and by what they feel, says Nelson. A man, a man must learn to touch her heart through her ear. Very important, gentlemen. Just because you thought something doesn't mean that you've spoken it. If she walks down the stairs and she looks lovely, tell her. Tell her extra. It doesn't hurt to say it one extra time than not to say it at all. <laughs> Amen? You guys out there? Okay, yeah. Let no unwholesome speech proceed from your mouth, Ephesians 4.29, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. We need to give as much grace as we can to those around us. They need to hear it from us. Reassurance from us. You're beautiful. We might need to uh, offer some classes on edification, don't you think? Because sometimes we just fall short in those areas. And so he has come. They have met. There's a beauty in her. And he's moving now down her body from her face. And he mentions her breasts. He says, your two breasts are like two fawns. Twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies. He's not afraid to comment on her body, but he does it in a decent, beautiful way. Two baby fawns are twins, young, soft, delicate, etc. He's, ex he's excited to experience her body. This is Proverbs 5, 18. It says these words, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Listen. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. So once you have committed to a person, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7 that their body belongs to you and your body belongs to them. And it's important to know that you can enjoy one another's bodies inside the covenant of marriage. God has said it, and he blesses it, and it's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's something that he designed. And if you celebrate that intimacy within the, the marriage bed, God blesses it. Purity and pleasure, this may shock you, go together. Purity and pleasure go together. When you do things right, your pleasure gets higher. They've done all these surveys of people who live together, and they said, oh, how can I really know if, you know, we, uh, we, we've got it, you know, clicking unless we live together. And all the surveys come back over the last three decades that people who have lived together prior uh, to their marriage covenant and have had uh, sexual relations, there's more abuse, there's more divorce. It just doesn't go well. Now, the Bible told us that a long time ago, but we think we're smarter than God. So I would just tell you, don't live with someone before you have a commitment because you're playing like you're married and you're not married and you have no covenant and you have no blessing from God and you're gonna get everything that goes with it. God will not bless it. Now, I will say this to you. Many of us have done it the wrong way, right? And we learned and, and we had to grow and we had to start over in Christ and his mercies are new every morning and every evening. You can start again in Christ. But if you know what you know right now, then don't do it the wrong way. And don't give yourself to a man before a wedding night. Because one of the great gifts that you can give 
to your future spouses your virginity. I'll say it again. One of the great gifts that you can give to your future spouse is your virginity. Now, that's not always the case, but you can recommit to it. Here's an example. If you're living with someone, sometimes we will have a couple come in and they say, I'm living with this person, but I want to make it right. And we'll say something like this. Okay, so what's your wedding day? They'll say March. We'll say, we'll say okay, so don't be intimate until March, until your wedding day, and one of you needs to move out. What? Well, let's put our money where our mouth is, right? If you say you're committed and you want to make this right, then let's make it right in every respect. Oh, well, financially, uh, that's going to hurt a little. Good. Maybe you need to move up the wedding day then, right? Well, we've been being intimate now. We need to stop. Yes. Why? Because you've done it out of order. And you need to get things in order. (laughs) Can we see another pastor? Is there anybody else that we can talk to around here? (laughs) Now, he wants to love her until the cool of the day, verse 6. Until the day breaks in IV. He wants to love her all night long. When the shadows flee away, he says, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. These are metaphors. I think you can put them together. He wants to be with her. And he says, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no blemish in you. Sometimes when we grow up in a Christian context, we hear about sex and it's no, 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 no. And then on the wedding night, it's yes. And we're like, how do you prepare for such a thing? And how do you know what the expectations are? And it could be a bit overwhelming. And I think reassuring one another verbally is a good thing. He's reassuring her that he loves her, that he sees her as beautiful. This needs to be an ongoing thing, by the way. There's no blemish in you. The church of Christ is without spot or blemish, not because we're perfect, we're sinners, but he's made us spotless. He's made us unaccusable before the Father because we have the righteousness of the Son. And throughout every season of life, we need to tell our bride, you are beautiful. You are beautiful. Now, he says, come with me from Lebanon, probably where her home was near, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon, journey down from the summit of Amana, the high places where there's perhaps snow and mist, scary places, from the summit of Sinair and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards, probably representative of her fears. And he says, Don't be afraid. Come with me. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will what? Give you rest. I'm going to provide for you, honey. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you. I want to say as I look out at you that I'm sorry if it didn't go that way for you. I know we live in a divorce culture as well, and some of you have come off a very hurtful, broken relationship And I'm sorry that it went that way. But there's always a chance to start again in Christ. And he's saying, look, I'm going to protect you. Don't be afraid. I will demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit. I'll be a gentle shepherd. You've made my heart beat faster. Nine, my sister, my bride. Sister is not that they're related, but it's a way to say they're close. It's a familial term. She's his bride, but he considers her her sister. And I will pause to say to you, Men, that this is something I heard from a wise man some years ago, and he said this, Michael, that your bride is also your sister in Christ, and she is also the daughter of the king. 
And when I return Brenda Lance to my king, I want to make sure that I've taken good care of her. Now, I know that that's not going to be perfect, but I hope and pray she's better than she was before <laughs> she met me. Amen. <laughs> Do you hear that? She said amen. <laughs> Praise God. You guys capture that on video? Okay, good. But I, I do think that the way we treat our bride needs to be commensurate with the way Christ loves his church. And some of you say impossible, and you've dismissed the verse because you don't think you can do it. But you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Gentlemen, we're to love our wives as Christ loves his church. And wives, your job is to respect and submit to your husband. And when those two things happen, there's a beautiful symmetry in marriage because both are giving their best to God's design. The problem is when it's out of whack. And so he says, how beautiful you are. He, he says, uh, let's go back to verse nine. You've made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes. Oh, there's some goo goo ga ga eyes going on. With a single strand of your necklace, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine? It won't sour. It won't have ill effects, says Spurgeon. And the fragrance of your oils and all kinds of spices, your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Now, if you thought the French in, uh, invented the French kiss, you're wrong. It goes all the way back to the Hebrew song of Solomon. And he says, under your tongue is the promised land, milk and honey. Yeah. It is biblical to have a long, sweet, wet kiss. Go ahead and mine for those treasures. <laughs> in your marriage, in Jesus' name. Like. Why did I come to church today? I didn't know this was going to... Anyway. The promised land is spoke of as a place of milk and honey in Exodus 3, verse 8. Kissing and touching are a part of intimacy. And you have to be careful with kissing. If you're courting someone right now, uh, you might want to hold hands, but you might want to be careful with the kissing thing. Here's why. Kissing in Hebrew means... Brenda? What? To kindle. So if you do a, uh, let's call it a Hebrew Song of Solomon kiss, it can kindle things. So you just need to be careful. Some of you are courting someone right now and you want to kiss, and I'm not telling you that the Bible says you shouldn't kiss, but I think this kind of kiss should be reserved until you're ready for a wedding night. Just some thoughts to share. I'm not being dogmatic on it, but you just need to think about it. See, because she is a garden locked, is my sister, 12. She's a virgin. My bride, a rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. All the language points to the fact that she hasn't been with a man yet. She's been a locked garden. It's been hands off until now. But the now has come, and it's going to be an explosion of metaphors. And here's what it says, 13 through 15. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, henna with nard plants, 14. Nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, along with all the finest spices. You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water and streams flowing from Lebanon. And all the guys say, yeah. <laughs> I mean, all this, an explosion of metaphors, but... 
They have come to the moment of consummation. <laughs> and they are excited. And you can't help but be excited for a newly married couple to experience that oneness and that, that, that uh, beautiful love. And so they have come to that moment of consummation. And she now speaks. She says, awake, O North Garden, a strong wind. North wind, I should say. And come with the, the south, the wind of the south, a more gentle wind. There can be in lovemaking sometimes, you know, stronger, sometimes gentleness. But it should be mostly gentle. I'll leave it there. <laughs> Make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. Now in 2.7... It says, I charge you, O daughter of, of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. 3.5 says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now look at verse 16. Awake, O north wind. <laughs> She's like, okay. <laughs> it's been locked. It's been no. It's been wait. And now it's okay. <laughs> Awake. It's time. And so they have come together and they have consummated their relationship. So in 5.1, there's the after moment and it's the final verse. I have come into my garden. You'll see my nine times. She is mine, I am hers. My sister, my bride, I have gathered my myrrh with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb. And my honey, I've drunk my wine and my milk. We'll pause there for a second. Nine mys after the fact. Women were surveyed and they said after lovemaking, they would really appreciate it if their husbands would softly spend time with them and caress them. And they would just hold each other and talk. If you are together in that way and then it's, you're out the door, it can send a message, and it's the wrong message. This is a time to rejoice and reflect and to reassure one another as best as you can. I was reading a woman uh, who commented on this, and she said these words, quoting, loving my husband can become an act of worship to God. As my husband and I lie together, satiated in the afterglow of sexual ecstasy, the most natural thing in the world is for me to offer thanksgiving to my God for the beauty and the glory of our sexual joy. I don't even think about it. I don't even think about what I'm doing in my heart. My heart just turns to the Lord and offers praise. Truly his gift of intimacy is a wondrous thing, she says. Her natural response is to know that there's a third party in their bedroom. And that's okay because God actually blesses the sexual union. And he is there because he lives inside, obviously, a couple who knows the Lord. And it's good. In fact, most scholars believe the voice at the end of 5.1 is the voice of God. And here's what he says. Eat, friends. Drink and imbibe deeply. Drink your fill, NIV, O lovers. The ESV has it this way. Be drunk with love. And there's a good majority of scholars that believe that that's where the Lord speaks here and says, this is good and get more and more and more of it 
in the right setting in the context of covenant marriage. I was listening to Pastor Tommy Nelson. He's done a great job on the Song of Solomon. And he said to the congregation who heard the message, what do you do after a message like this? How do you close it? And he said, James 1.22 comes to mind. Be doers of the word and not merely hearers only. <laughs> who delude yourselves? Let me qualify. If you're married. <laughs> All right. Now we are going to move into a time of communion. And I told you that might seem a little awkward. However, communion anticipates the time when our bridegroom is coming. We remember the dowry he paid for us. We also remember that he's coming for us again in his love chariot to sweep us up. And we remember the Lord's death until he comes. So you can come forward, guys and gals with the communion elements. Would you hold them and we'll take them together? Let me just say, uh, in a room like this, I don't know if all of you are Christians. I know many of you, if not most of you, but you may not be a believer yet. And uh, if you're not, the way you come into a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ is you have to say, I do or I will. There is a proposal on the table. And the proposal is, will you marry me? Will you come into covenant with me? I paid the dowry at the cross with my blood. Will you trust me? But you have to have a moment, if you're watching via live stream, you and I have to have a moment where we say, I do, I will. I will turn away from all other competing loves. I will turn away from all the idols that have been in my life and my heart. All the things that have distracted me from my true love. And I will turn to that true love and I will trust him as my king, savior, God, and in this metaphor, my husband. I will come into a covenant, the new covenant with him. Have you done that? Don't leave this world without making sure that you know the one who loves you. The one who loved your soul so much he died for you, amen? And I know that the room is filled with so many people who have said, I will, I do to the king. But if you're not sure that you know him, then make sure. He is, he is a prayer away. So go ahead and just keep holding the elements. Father, thank you for this precious congregation and for this time in the Song of Solomon. I know that there could be a myriad of emotions to this message, Lord, and I pray that Whatever those emotions may be, we would lay them at the feet of Jesus, our great God and Savior. Lord, if there's hurt, some people may be celebrating, some may be hurt. Some may feel a sense of loneliness. I pray in every area where there's a gap, you would meet that need for those who are widowed or widowers, for those who are single and have the gift of singleness. For those who have been waiting for the right person for a long time. For those who have maybe made a mistake in this area. I pray that you would meet every need, every gap. May your grace flow into every gap. But for all of us who know the beauty of what it means to belong to you, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for loving us so beautifully. Thank you for calling us to yourself so gently. Thank you for paying the, the price of the dowry so completely. We're just in awe of your love. And thank you for a day when we're going to celebrate at the wedding marriage of the Lamb. 
And thank you that the best is yet to come. The life to come, there's going to be depth and pleasures at your right hand forevermore that far outweigh this life. And we have that to look forward to. And, and for those who have lost a loved one in the Lord, there's a reunion coming, a resurrection. We're going to see our loved ones again. And you'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. And it may well be, Lord, that where you do that is at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Oh, God, thank you. We have messed up this world but you came on such a beautiful rescue mission, inviting us to the mercy seat of love. We're just so grateful.